Welcome to the Princess and the Bee podcast, the place to be to build your empire as queen of your body, business, and life. I'm your host, Kimberly Spencer, founder of crownyourself.com, and I'm an award-winning coach, Amazon best-selling author, and multi-passionate entrepreneur. Each week, I give you the systems, strategies, and success stories to help you master your mindset, communicate with ease, and triple your productivity so you make the income and the impact you deserve. Imagine this podcast as your weekly spark of inspiration as you take it to the next level with all the bees of your life, body, business, bank account, boys, and babies. Let's make it rain. Hello and welcome back to The Princess and the Bee. I am so ridiculously excited to have this guest on the show because she was, she knew me in my past life as a Pilates instructor. She was one of my amazing clients and she had one of the most powerful and profound bodily transformations that I have ever experienced or seen in any of my clients ever in 10 years of teaching. And we will dive into that on this episode as well. Who I am bringing on today is Meredith Prunkard. She is an executive producer and showrunner in the television industry. Her focus is on female-centric programming from linear network and cable projects to OTT and digital content. Her work includes the Women's Image Award-winning series, Funny Girls, which portrays the plight of female comics working in a male-dominated industry, and Hello Sunshine's Master the Mess. In her spare time, Meredith serves as an executive board member of the Los Angeles chapters of Together We Will we Will, and Pantsuit Nations, which are grassroots progressive activist groups. She is a volunteer with the Southern California Bulldog Rescue and a foster parent to the Senior Bulldog Hospice Program. She lives in Northeast LA with her husband, Ben, and her beloved American Bulldog, Breslin. Meredith, thank you so much for coming on. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited, so excited to be on your podcast. And I'm so, I like love it so much. Love it. So thank you for what, doing what you do. Absolutely. Thank you for, for doing what you do. And for, I, I just find your success and your specific area of expertise as a producer and showrunner, specifically with a lot of reality show content, uh, or what would be called reality show content is is fascinating to me. So how did you get started in doing what you do? Well, I've always wanted to work in TV. Like I've known since I was a kid that I wanted to work in TV. Um, but I think like, you know, I always gravitated toward, I thought that I would end up in the sitcom world. I really gravitated toward comedy. And I thought, you know, that's all I really knew when I was a kid. It's like, I don't really know what it means to make TV, but um, I know that I want to do just that. So, and, and the shows that I loved and the shows that like the show that inspired me to even want to do this career was Golden Girls. So I kind of like my, and then as I grew up and like, you know, my, my kind of TV preferences like evolved into, you know, stuff like Seinfeld and the state and Mr. Show and just like comedy sketch stuff, um, com you know, sitcoms, like all of that is kind of, I just assumed that I would go down that path. But then when I moved to LA, the first thing that I was kind of offered was um, an unscripted shows. It was a plastic surgery reality show. This was like back in 2004 called Dr. 90210. And 
what I learned working on that show, because I was like, oh, I'll do this for now. It's like my foot in my, you know, my foot in the door and I'll, you know, kind of see, see what this is all about. And then, you know, eventually, eventually I'll get into scripted. But I realized from working on that show that from the feedback from um, not just the cast, you know, the people that, you know, the doctors helped on the show or whatever, but also people who watched the show and they would send emails to the production company and they would say, you know, oh my gosh, like watching the show, I don't, I don't feel so alone or watching the show. I realized that there's hope. And I know it's like a plastic, there's like a lot of, you know, uh, you know, reconstructive stuff and a lot of like pro bono work. And I think people Mm -hmm. felt, like when people were watching it, they were like, oh my God, I have this like burden that I've been carrying around and now maybe there's something, you know, I can do something about it. And when I realized the way, like that made, the way that that made me feel, I, I thought, oh my gosh, like reality TV is just kind of ramping up and, and it, 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 we didn't even know what it was at that point in time, mm-hmm. like back in 2004. But I, what I did know is I thought like, well, okay, so we have the ability to reach people everywhere, you know, and it's, it's real people and and, you know, there people can, I, the work that I would be doing, be reaching people kind of like on a much more relatable level than anything that I would be doing in scripted. And so I kind of went for it. And then the more, like, as the years went by, I kind of tailored, you know, the jobs that I took to, you know, the con- into the comedy space. And then mm-hmm. as I became, you know, able to kind of be even more <laughs> you know, picky about the projects that I accepted, female centric kind of like took over. So now I'm really in this like, in this like comedy, this female centric comedy, you know, unscripted world that I really, really love. Amazing. I think it's so interesting because reality or unscripted television, it has so many different connotations for so many different types of people. But I love how you took this this powerful benefit that you saw from people having that relatability to the characters and to the the story. So what is it about uh, unscripted television? How do you craft that story that makes it so relatable um, on an episode-to-episode basis and on, like, the whole series basis? Yeah, I mean, there's, it's such a, it's such a process because, you know, you always want to be, I mean, if you're, if you're doing, if you're doing it with integrity, you always want to make sure that you're, you know, obviously telling the, the true stories and really kind of doing, you know, being, doing the cast justice, you know, like doing what you came to doing and prom and, and keeping your promises to the cast. I think that's like really important. You know, the audience is going to know if something feels fake. And so, but, but it's difficult because you can't just turn the camera on and follow somebody around for six months to a year. We have to have a plan when we go in, you know, so we spend about, you know, anywhere from like four to six weeks or longer sometimes um, before we start shooting, getting to know the cast, you know, hanging out with them every single day, finding out what, what goes on in their lives, um, learning, you know, spending time with their families, spending time with their, their friends, spending time with them at work, whatever the show is about or whatever the subject is. It's like, it's just getting to know them so, so personally. <laughs> it's like a crash course in like their day-to-day lives. Um, and then, and so, and, and then, and you know, you develop a relationship with them and you like get to the point where you guys are kind of being vulnerable with each other and to where you kind of like, you get a really good sense of who they are and what is going on in their lives. And then we kind of decide what the stories are. We plan what 
the, what we're going to shoot and what the stories are based on kind of this pre-production period, right? And then mm-hmm. once we start shooting, most of the time that plan goes completely out the window, you know, because then other things come up in their lives. And then we decide we have to make the decision, are we going to follow this, what's happening, or are we going to kind of stick with this other thing that we already planned on? And depending on just how things go, you know, usually you always kind of want to follow like what's actually happening unless the cast <clears throat> isn't comfortable with it. Um, mm-hmm. But anyway, so then after we were done shooting, which, you know, depending on how many episodes it is, is anywhere from like, you know, 10 weeks to, to 20 weeks or whatever, um, you know, we're back in edit in post. And then it's, you know, now it's up to us to, <clears throat> you know, cut everything down into like a half hour or an hour format and um again maintain the integrity of what really happened and making sure that the voice that we're giving to the cast is their their voice um and so then we spend you know a few months then in post like putting the episodes together and then we go through a grueling notes process with the production company and the network and it's very collaborative and and um you know in my mind like that's my that's the most important part of the, of the process is the post process. Why is that? I think because, well, it's the last stop, you know, there's nothing, there's, there's nowhere to go after that. You know, when you, when you shoot, after you shoot, there's still all these possibilities because, you know, you have to, you have to craft the stories into the, you know, time, the total running time. Mm -hmm. And so, um, you know, there's still so many kind of ways that the stories can go after we shoot. Um, once we get in there and start putting everything together and seeing kind of like how everything takes shape, like that is where the show is made, is in post. And also it's where the show sings. You know, we call it making a sausage when we're shooting it and we're like in the process of editing it because it's not a pretty sight. You know, <laughs> raw, raw footage is not pretty. It is, you know, it's very dirty. It's very messy. Um, it's very, you know, that's like where all the sweat is. And, then, and this is coming from a vegan. <laughs> it's how the the soy riso is made (laughs) but then once it's made you know it's fucking delicious oh sorry oh no it's totally fine drop the f-bombs all the way so once once the sausage is is made and and it's cooked it's fucking delicious and and Mm. that's what and that's like you know and that's like the dessert for me is like the reward of you know kind of seeing um the, you know, all of the blood, sweat, and tears come together. And, and you know, the best, absolute best part about it is when the cast watches it for the first time. And, you know, everything for me personally kind of hangs on what their reactions are. And if they feel that we were, if they still trust me, and if they feel like that I, that I told their stories the way that they wanted me to, then I, I feel really, really good. And that's, that's what it's all about. <laughs> oh, I, I love it. Because I can tell you from having been on an unscripted show as some of my listeners have have known or seen like chicken soup for the soul followed us around um, on a show called being dad. They were highlighting my husband because he was uh, an older dad. He was becoming a dad at the age of 50. And so we got this opportunity. And for me, it was, I was in the beginning stages of really ramping up my, my coaching business and becoming a mother. And I was like, this is a perfect opportunity to highlight this massive transformational shift in our world 
of having bringing a living being into this world. And I remember watching the show with Spike after after filming and doing all the interviews and all that stuff. And we just, I was like, I was so glad to have had that experience because seeing it, like they captured this moment that, that A is as looking back, I'm like, oh, I don't remember much of that, <laughs> but it happened because <laughs> that first sort of like end of single, uh, end of, you know, pregnancy to beginnings of becoming a mother, like very much a blur. Um, especially when growing a business at the same time. But like looking back, I was just, it was so beautiful to, to watch that evolution and to have that preserved in time. And so I, I, I think there are so many beautiful stories that are out there to be told. And that's the benefit of what you do. Now, I love, especially Meredith, that you talk about the integrity of, of really preserving that with the story. So what made integrity such a, such a key value for you when it comes to your job and your life? I think with my job, <clears throat> because early on I got to taste that like really sweet, um, that really great feeling of, of getting, the, getting positive feedback and not realizing that I was going to be helping people it kind of was, I was like, I want to feel that again. You know, I mean, it's all like, it's not altruistic at all. It's super selfish. Yeah. <laughs> I just, I was like, wow, this feels so good. And then, you know, and then I've done, you know, and so I think like moving forward and, you know, I've done, I've done shows that are not, that are not like, you know, I've done, I did Rock of Love with Brett Michaels. <laughs> <laughs> I did a, a dating show with Tila Tequila. I mean, like in my early, I remember, days, I, you know, I remember that one. I remember that one from back in like the late, the early 2000s. I mean, I've done a lot of stuff that is not, you know, I've done like the quote unquote, like, you know, trashy, like reality TV. I mean, mm -hmm. I don't bash those productions because honestly, there were some like really amazing moments in, in those, but I've done, I've done, I've done the shows that I haven't kind of gotten that like feedback on that like amazing kind of thank you you've helped me kind of feedback and and then I've done those that 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 I do get that and I think now that I'm in this position to where I can kind of take I can kind of pick and choose like you know which projects I want to do it's like I'm going for the stuff that I'm going for the shows and the content that I where I can kind of chase that and and I can kind of feel good about what I do when I go to bed at night um, and in my life, you know, it's helped me in the same way. I mean, I've, I have taken so many lessons from this career, um, that things that I've learned over the years and applied them to my life. And my life is not even close to being where, you know, I'm, I was a, I was a, I was a hot mess and like this in my twenties and this really, this career has helped me to kind of streamline my life and to get organized and um, to become like a, an amazing kind of like time management, um, time manager and, 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 you know, and being like super organized and like even in just the way that I, my thoughts are formed now, it's much different. So, you know, I've, so it's not just the integrity kind of that I do try to apply in like other areas of my life, but there's a lot that this career has given me. Um, you know, which sounds stupid because like you said earlier to your point about, you know, there being a stigma um, with reality TV or you said that there's like different connotations. Yeah. There certainly is. There certainly is. And I really am actively trying to change that by, um, 
you know, by talking about the, the shows out there that really are, can be, you know, transformative. Um, and, and, again, and that's why I, I was like, I had to have you on because I was like, what you're doing in, in I, I know where you come from with such a place of, of good heartedness and that sort of mission that's driving you forward beyond just like the unscripted stuff that sometimes, you know, especially when you're first starting out, that's kind of the stuff that you, you don't, are, you aren't in a position yet to be able to choose like where you are now, where you can choose which shows you work on. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, in the beginning, you're just kind of feeling it out like any other, like any other industry and kind of going where the money is and, or where the work is. I'm freelance, you know? Yeah. So what was your training and for, for this position? Did you go to film school? Did you go to college? Did you just like one day wake up and decide like, I'm going to be, you know, producing TV? Um, I went to, I went to college. I went to Bowling Green State University and they had a really great uh, video production program. And so I got a telecommunications degree and I learned, I learned a lot of stuff that is like basically was obsolete by the time I graduated. (laughs) Um, But I, because it's tech, you know, but I learned, I learned a ton of fundamentals that, you know, helped prepare me for, for this career, but really like on the job training is, is, is where I have learned everything I know. You know, it's, it's, it's through the experience, through the doing, just going through it and like, you know, dropping the ball a million times and then picking it back up and learning from it. And, and that's really, and it doesn't ever end. Yes. Especially since I'm freelance. And so every single, every job I do, you know, is with, is a different, is different. You know, nothing has the same process. The people are all different. The processes are different. The storytelling, you know, ends up being different. There's always, a, you know, so I'm constantly learning new things, which is another part of this profession that I love so much. I love that. So as a child, did you dream of being a storyteller? Like, what are the similarities from the things that you wanted to be as a kid to what you're doing now? When I was a kid, I was really creative and I was a storyteller and I was a writer and I would write stories and I would write like mini books and I would come up with, you know, I was, I was really creative in that way. And so storytelling was always kind of like in my heart, but you know, I never knew there was no frame of reference for growing up in like a, you know, a lower kind of middle-class area of Detroit. Um, And, you know, going to a very small high school where, you know, doing anything outside of the box, is not celebrated um, <laughs> at all. It's definitely not encouraged. Nobody was encouraging me to like follow my dreams. It was like, you know, you could, I, it was like, you know, you can work in the automobile industry, you can be an engineer, you, know, you can be a nurse or a doctor, which all of those things are, are like super respectable and great, um, but not something that I was interested in. So I, all I knew that is, is that I had like this kind of itch to get the hell out of where I was. I'm, you know, I have, I still have my like life back in Detroit and I love so much. Like my closest friends are there still to this day. I've known them since I was like three years old and I, and they're still my best friends and there's, and I love the city that I'm from, but something was calling me. I needed to, to go where I needed to go somewhere where my kind of like creative urges were going to be, um, you know, kind of where I could scratch that itch and feel like there were more opportunities for me. 
Yeah, and so did you directly move from from Detroit to your uh, college town to LA, or did you were, were there stops along the way? Basically, about two weeks after I graduated, I had picked a day, January sixteenth, two thousand four, <laughs> and I was like, I had no money because I was like terrible at saving, and I just I knew, even though I knew that this date was coming up for months and months and months, like literally a year. I knew that I was leaving on this day. And then when that day came, I had zero money. I was just like, what did I do? So my friend like loaned me $1,300. I got a U-Haul. I, I, I towed my car behind it. And um, my mom and I, who also had no money, like Pat, we put my dog in the car and then we in the U-Haul and we just drove together to LA. Um, we had like a bunch of canned food and um, packed like a cooler and, and like canned beans and tuna. And like, this is before I was vegan and drove <laughs> and um, slept in the car. And, and that is, and I was just like, this is just what I'm doing. And then I got so lucky because I landed a job. Like literally I got there on a Saturday and I landed a job on Monday somehow, like literally started on Monday, like walked into a place to E entertainment. And I was like, you guys need a PA? And they were like, actually. Yeah. Wow. You were that bold to walk. Just, you just walked into E entertainment. We're like, you guys need a PA? Really? I wasn't that bold because I had interned there the summer before. Okay. So I, so I had like, I had been in the building before I knew, you know, I knew some of the people there. So I, I was not that bold, no. <laughs> but still, that takes guts, girl. Like, to just, I mean, I what I love about your story is you were decisive. You made that decision. And, like, even when the decision, the time to, like, act on the decision, there were not many resources. You found them. You found a way. And by Monday, <laughs> you had a job by getting, once you were in L.A., like, that just shows the amazing grit and resilience that you have. Thanks. That is, it's just phenomenal. Like, that's no wonder that you're successful. Like, so looking at that, what was the biggest lesson from, from that moment that you just made the decision, you drove across country and then you landed in LA to now, what was the biggest lesson that you've, you've learned along the way? I was like a very, when I was younger and when I when all through college and really like, I still struggle with it, but I was such a people pleaser when I was younger. And I really think it, it was a setback for me kind of like as I was just coming up in, in my career. Mm -hmm. um, but I, but I've, I've learned, that's been my, I've learned along the way that that is not how you make change and that's not how you, um, um, make good TV in my case. Um, and you know, the product is never going to be as good when you're only just trying to kind of appease the powers that be and not rock the boat and not have strong opinions. You know, like those are the thing I was so, I was afraid. I was afraid of, of people in positions that were higher than me essentially when I was, when I was younger. And so that's been a, a big lesson for me to learn and that I, I have, I have done, it's, it took me a long time and I, and I still struggle with it sometimes, but that's been my biggest, I think that's been my biggest lesson. And it's been like a, yeah, like I said, it's been a really tough one for me. Yeah. That that's one that I see so commonly with, with women like myself included, like it's, 
that that sort of disease to please of, of being taught like don't rock the boat don't speak up like i found that for me um like challenging when i was a kid i always used to challenge sort of behavior that was not people's highest and best specifically when it came to my dad and like that that thing that i was you know, scolded for as a child of, you know, oh, you know, try to acquiesce, try to not rock the boat. I was like, wow, that just feels so out of integrity for me that now, like as a coach, that's like my superpower of being able to lovingly challenge. So looking at like when you were uh, a kid before, like, did you always feel like you had this disease to please or like, were there things that you kind of got in trouble for as a child, like rocking the boat? I'm just curious. Um, I really had this I really had this issue my whole life. Like I really, yeah. yeah, I really did. I mean, look, I got, you know, I knocked, I butted heads a lot with my parents. Um, mm-hmm. That they, they were excluded. <laughs> they were excluded from this like need to please. I didn't, you know, I, I butted heads with them a lot. Yeah. Uh, and, and, you know, any boyfriend I ever had and my, and my now husband, you know, that they, the, the people who were kind of closest to me, I think were always, my, my friends though, no, no, I really always did want to please them. I was always the person that never, you know, I really didn't get into a lot of fights with my friends because I just kind of like let them walk all over me because <laughs> ah. I, like, I never wanted to, I never wanted them, I never wanted to make somebody feel bad or more specifically, I never wanted somebody to feel bad because of me. So mm. it was more like, I didn't want to be, I didn't want somebody to have anger directed at me or like bad feelings directed at me. I always wanted people to like me. So it wasn't even like, it was a very kind of almost narcissistic kind of maybe quality where I was just so, I just needed to be liked. And like, I wanted everybody to think I was like so great. So I never wanted to make anybody feel bad. And that is kind of where it came from, I think. Mm. I'm no therapist, but I think that's where it came from. (laughs) So looking at that, though, like when was that moment that you shifted, that you realized your power where instead you, instead of like longing to be liked by people in power, you just were like, hey, I'm going to rock the boat a little bit. I'm going to share, you know, I'm going to give my strong opinion about, you know, what I think I should do or with the show or wherever when was that moment did that did you have a specific event or experience yeah I think I mean it's it I think it was really like you know it did compound over like the course of you know kind of my my when I became kind of like an above the line producer Mm -hmm. um and I started having more responsibility. I, you know, I think it, 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 it compounded and I started kind of learning, but there was one show. It wasn't that long ago, honestly. I think you and I were together at this point. I think we had just started working together mm-hmm. back in 2015. And I did this show and it could have, you know, and, and it got really messed up. Like the, uh, you know, my counterpart, I was doing posts, my counterpart was doing field. He got fired. I ended up having to take over field and also do post. And, um, I, I, it could have gone two ways. And had I been firm in my um, objections to, you know, the way things were and said like, hey, this is what we need. These are the resources that we need. And I'm not able to kind of like stand by this product if I don't have these things. Mm-hmm. If I said that if I would have stood up for like the things that I know that I needed instead of trying to kind of a either be the hero 
and save the show by just like using what I had and trying to like just do everything, which is impossible. But I thought, fuck it, I can do this. <laughs> I, I really should have, I really should have taken a step back and been like, okay, what are the, what are the issues here? What did, you know, my predecessor, like, what did he, the, the, the guy that got fired, like, what did he kind of miss that I can now step in and, um, and assess and then learn from? But instead, I just kind of let everything just steamroll me. And, um, and it did not go well at all. And that was like the worst experience that I've had on a show. And, and, but every subsequent show after that, I have noticed that I've really kind of come into my power and I've, and I've taken those, I've, I've, I think without actively thinking it, I was, I think I was just like, I've had enough. I had like a period of grieving after that really awful experience where I Mm -hmm. had a couple of months off before I found my next job. And I just, I like meditated and I, and I really like just kind of dug deep. And I was like, I think I realized that I had to start, speaking up and I had to be more of a leader. And I think that that's when, and, and every subsequent show has been very empowering for me. And, um, I, I've really felt like I've been like a different person ever since then in terms of like where I am in my career. Um, and I feel a lot stronger. And so I think that for me, that was the defining, that show is kind of like a, a defining moment for me. And so like now that it was, it's kind of like my career is divided into two parts. There was, it was before that show and it was after that show. And, um, and so I'm grateful for that kind of like failure, I guess. I, I love that. I think failure is like the best way to radically quantum leap. Yeah. In it, essence, it, I'm I, I know that you said that that was like back when we first started working together. Was that when you were dealing with, with your back issues as well? Yeah. yeah so that I was, would love for you to go into that just a bit. Yeah. Okay. So um, I'll give you a quick backstory. I'll keep it short, but um, I, I think I was around 10 years old when I found out that I had scoliosis and I'm not sure why I basically I've been having back, lower back pain specifically for since I was 10 years old and I'm, going to be 39 next mm-hmm. month. What? Um, yeah. <laughs> and I, you know, just kind of dealt with it in terms, I just, I just got, you know, I think like anybody who has chronic pain, you get used to it after a while. And um, I'd always been active, um, but there would be like about a, you know, a, a week every year or more that my back would like, quote unquote, just go out. And like, I would be kind of bedridden for a week or so. Um, but I always had lower back pain. There's not a day went by in my life where I didn't have lower back pain and I wouldn't wake up super stiff in the morning. And, and like, just, I was always walking weird. Like I used to get made fun of in school for like the way that I walked and it's, and it was my back. It was always my back. And, um, when I, when I was 36, so this is back in 2016, um, I was, uh, I think the timeline's a little fuzzy, but I, I, I said, you know what, I'm going to start doing something about this. So that's when I found Dr. Betty and mm-hmm. which is, you know, where, so that was, where- that was where I was working. Yeah. Um, and so Meredith, Meredith and I were working together, um, back when I was teaching Pilates and like, I remember her walking in and I was like, oh my goodness. Like she, it, it, like, 
so young to be in so much pain, like could not lie down on her back. And it was yeah. like, your transformation was phenomenal. So I saw Dr. Betty. She, so that, she was really like the first person that she kind of like was a springboard for my like recovery because I, Dr. Betty's a chiropractor. I'd never seen a chiropractor before. And she encouraged me to go get x-rays which I had had done like before it's just whatever. Like I had x-rays done before and like just nothing ever really came of it. It's just like, Oh, your back's fucked up. And then like, Oh, okay. Well there's really, you know, what am I going to do? Have surgery? I guess. I don't know. Um, so, which I never did, but, um, she encouraged me to get the x-rays and then I found out this is the first time that I'd ever kind of gotten some sort of like diagnosis from an x-ray. And it said that I had this thing called spondylolisthesis. And essentially that is like my, my um, L5. So my like L lowest kind of vertebrae, vertebra was like vertebrae. I don't know. Vertebra. Was- <laughs> vertebrae. <laughs> potato, <laughs> potato. Slipped forward. It was like slipped forward, like seven millimeters. Um, and so Betty was like, oh, this is a thing that I've encountered before. It's kind of, it could be, you know, for now it's like, I think you're like mid-grade. I was like lower mid-grade, like seriousness. And she was like, you know, my other clients have this. And she kind of, you know, so I saw Dr. Betty and she would like, you know, do the TENS units, like the electro current um, stimulators, whatever, for your muscles in the back to try to like relieve some of the tension back there. And, you know, there was some like mild, I think, you know, relief every now and then. Um, I, from there, I went and saw a spinal um, specialist, spine specialist in Marina Del Rey. And he was like, oh, well, why don't you get MRIs so I can really kind of see what's going on. So I did that. I got an MRI and he was like, oh, okay. So it looks like you have all these other things. I mean, they were so, I'm, I'm really simplifying this, this like long process. Yeah. Um, but essentially I got to the point where I had CT scans done and I, so I went and had a CAT scan and that's when I was actually just packing to leave for, uh, to go on the road for this, this show that I was just telling you about. Um, and you and I had already started working together and, and like, so I was getting ready to leave for like four months for this show. And, um, I, the doctor called me because it was, I remember it was a Friday and I couldn't come into the office because I was about, I was going to get on a plane like that night. And so he called me with my results from the CT scan. And he said, your, he said, your, um, you know, I, I just want to let you know that you're, you're not going, um, surgery is off the table for you because you're basically inoperable because you're so far gone. And there were like nine different issues that I had going on. One of it being the spondy that I talked about earlier. Mm -hmm. I had like massive amounts of bone spurs just all over my lumbar spine. I had advanced osteoarthritis. I had, um, every disc was slipped and degenerated. Um, I had a scoliosis. Um, I had, God, what else? There's more. <laughs> as, um, as if that wasn't enough. Yeah. But- and so he said to me, he was like, look, you can't, I was like, well, if I can't have surgery, and, and by the way, like I had been doing physical therapy and it had just kind of made it worse. And I think that's actually what kind of um, 
Um, that's why I ended up getting a CT scan. Mm -hmm. Okay, this is not working. Let's see what else is going on. And so when he said he's, I was like, well, then what's the net, what are the next steps? Like, what can I do for this like awful pain and all of this like horrible, like all these horrible kind of like structural abnormalities with me? Like what, what can we do? And he was like, just, you know, just try to take it easy. No more yoga. He was like, I, you know, you have about two more years left of like full mobility and then you're probably going to be in a chair. Oh my gosh. I remember when you told me that. Yeah. And I was like, I was just numb. I like, I don't, I didn't even know like how to process that. And so I called my husband and I said, Hey, I just got off the phone with the doctor and um, I just, I'm going to tell you what he told me. And then I never want to talk about it again because I, I don't really believe it right now. And whatever. It was just, I was very like not knowing how to deal with it, but I needed Ben to know. And then I just wanted to figure out how I was going to deal with it. So I told Ben, he was like, okay, <laughs> I won't, I won't bring it up again. And then I left, I went, I, you know, I, I went on the road and had like the most stressful, like production experience of my life. Um, in which over, over which like that period of time I became so much worse. And looking back now, it's, you know, it's because I, in my head, I, I was like, I'm going to be in a wheelchair. So all I can do is think about it, even though I told myself I wasn't going to think about it. All I could do is think about it, which just made the pain even worse. And yeah. by the time I came back and I finished that job, it was December. And um, I found out in June. Um, so I was, you know, about six months into this, like, ticking clock of, like, being in a wheelchair. And um, my, my nieces, my teenage nieces came out to visit um, that December and um, they wanted to go, they wanted to go indoor skydiving. And so I was like, great, I'll take you. So I took them and they're like, I was like signing them up and they were like, you're not doing it. And I was like, I can't do it. And I hadn't really gotten into that, like what my back issues were with them because they were so young. Um, but I was like, no, I can't. And they were like, come on. And like in that moment, I was like, you know what? Fuck it, if I'm going to be in a wheelchair, I'm going to at least go, and I haven't been doing anything for my, for my body. Like I haven't, I basically, I had stopped working out completely because they basically told me to. Um, and you know, my back was so much worse than it was even back then because of all this pressure. And so I thought, you know what, I'm just going to do it. I'm just going to do it. If I speed up the process, who cares? Like I just had this like moment where I was like, and it, but it was the best thing that I could have done because I did the skydiving with my nieces. It was super fun. It was like just a great experience that we all shared together. And then the next day, and I felt great afterwards because I had all this adrenaline and my back felt fine. And then the next morning, I could not move. And so for the next four days, I did not get out of bed. And during those four days, I said to Ben, I was like, can you go find this book? It's called Healing Back Pain. Somebody had given it to me. like two years prior, it was a colleague of mine who we had gone to dinner one night and we had been talking about back pain. And he said, he had, he's like, Oh, you should read this book. It totally like saved my life because I had all this back pain too. And then I read the book and then I was like, fine. And I, you know, I listened to him and I'm like, "Uh uh-huh, uh-huh. I, you know, in my head, I was like, my back pain is a little more advanced than that. I think that like any kind of self-help book is going to like, you know, get me out of it. So I took the book and then I just, I just tossed it aside and I never read it. So, but in that moment when I was laying in bed and facing, you know, not paralysis, but basically like immobility, I, I was like, 
Ben, can you find that book? I'm like ready to read it. Like I, what, there's anything I can do at this point. Mm-hmm. And so I read the book and then I read it again and um, I got out of bed and I was like, I'm barely in pain just from reading, just from reading it, just from like now, it, just from like having that knowledge now, like I, it doesn't hurt anymore. And that's mm-hmm. what made me realize that, you know, the, so Dr. Sarno wrote this book called Healing Back Pain, and he's written subsequent books as well. He was, you know, a spine specialist back in like the 60s and 70s, well, the 70s and 80s, really. And he was feeling like he wasn't getting a lot of fulfillment because he thought like, you know, people are getting temporary relief. My patients are getting temporary relief, but they're not, I'm not really giving them cures. Nobody's Mm -hmm. cured. And so he set out to kind of like research why. And, um, you know, when all of his colleagues, and he was really like maligned in his industry for like- He was. Even though he is only, he he is the only doctor that I have heard of that has a 96% cure rate of curing back pain from just giving knowledge alone. Yeah, exactly. And so he basically, his whole thing, what he realized when he started like researching this, he was like, oh my God, all of these- all of these conditions that I'm diagnosing my patients with, like bone spurs, like spondylolisthesis, like mm-hmm. scoliosis, like slip discs, and all of these things that sound really, really painful, there's no medical proof that they actually cause pain. But when people come in with back pain and then they get an x-ray or an MRI or a CAT scan done, and the doctor says, oh, you have all these abnormalities, of course this is the cause of your pain. And the patients, because believe it, because it's totally logical. And then, and so then it's like, then it's like reinforced and they're mm-hmm. like, okay, well then this means this, this, the, the, this thing that I have means pain. And so then they get surgery, but then the, but then the pain moves up to the next because it's not structural. The pain is caused by repressed emotions. It's called caused by repressed rage. And we all have it for the most part. Mm-hmm. And your body- your brain does not want you to have to go through that sadness. So your brain redirects the, it distracts you with like a physical, um, you know, with physical pain that, that it feels like, Oh, she can deal with the physical pain. She's not really equipped to deal with this emotional pain. Mm-hmm. Here's some physical pain. Just kind of take your mind off of it. Just keep tamping it down, tamping it down. And, re- and, and, and also, I mean, there's like a physical component to it too, because, because when you're, when you get that pain, it really like it, it, it doesn't, it's restricting oxygen to like that kind of area of your body. So that oxygen deprivation also kind of leads to the pain. Um, so it's a little bit of a cycle. And then you create like all the neural pathways where you're like, oh, I'm, you know, like this is how, this is where my mind goes. So every time I run, every mm-hmm. time I do yoga, every time I fucking sit in this, in this position, every time I'm driving, anytime I'm sleeping, every, anytime I'm standing, this is what's causing pain. Um, you're reinforcing every day, every day, every day. And so this book really teaches you to like, if you can just believe and just know that this is, that your pain is not a struck, is not caused by structural abnormalities. It's caused by your, basically your brain. Mm-hmm. Just knowing, just knowing that and understanding that your pain goes away. Girl, you, I am like cheering from afar. Like I like the vibes of cheering are going into this microphone and into this podcast. Cause like, this is like one of the big things, especially like as an NLP coach, 
I talk with a lot of my clients about the power of labels and what a diagnosis is, is it's just a label. It's another label. But what happens is with label, just like with any other word, is we make that label mean something. That label can mean something awful or something nothing. It can mean nothing, but it depends on the meaning that you give it. So I give it the example a lot of the times with labels for, for me, for my own health, was when I was pregnant with Declan, I had placenta previa. And what the doctors said, they gave me this label. They said, here's the diagnosis. You'll, you're not going to be able to have a natural birth. Like I was heart set, dead set against uh, on having a natural birth. I was not going to have a C-section. I was so un- entirely 100% focused, but the doctor was like, um, no, you have placenta previa. I said, okay, great, doc. What, what are my odds of this moving? He said, well, you have about a 50-50 shot, but you're probably, like he said, in most of my experience, you're looking at a C-section. I was like, that's not going to happen. So I just totally, I did not make that label of the diagnosis mean anything. Mm-hmm. And knowing, you know, what I knew from NLP, what I know from like after reading Healing Back Pain, I was like, my mind, your unconscious mind, it runs your body. And when your body has negative emotions, like where do you think it, it stores it? Like it's it, when your brain, when you experience negative emotions, it stores it in places in your body because it's repressing it until you're ready to deal with whatever the actual thing is. The pain is an effect of a deeper cause. Right. So that, that diagnosis was the effect of just, it was just a label. So I took the next eight weeks and I did my research. I took some herbs. I did uh, some Chinese herbs to help raise my body temperature. I took some with the advice of my doctors, my other doctors and my, my midwives. And I meditated. I did a ton of meditation and I just focused. And by the time I went back to that one technician who did perform the, the, what do you, the ultrasound, uh, he was like shocked and blown away. He's like, how did you do it? I was like, I used my mind. (laughs) But it blew out his model of the world. And I think that's one of the things that's so, that's so powerful about this book because this was also a book that I recommended to my husband, which was actually highlighted on the show that we were on that was following our journey, which is so apropos because you turned me onto the book and then we were on a unscripted <laughs> docu-series. So totally. <laughs> yeah, but the, uh, but one of the th- topics of the show was my husband's back pain. Like he had had chronic back pain for 20 years and he had had back surgery and he had blown out a disc and he had had back pain ever since then. I, he literally, he read the book and it was like no more back pain. Like he's had back pain three times since then. And he knows every time it, he, he just asks his unconscious mind and he ties it back and he's like, okay, well, what's actually triggering this? What is the actual fear? What is the, what is the thing that I'm angry about? And he starts asking the emotional questions and eventually that the true cause of the pain reveals itself and the back pain is totally gone. So it's, it's like this book, if you have back pain, I just challenge you to, to read it. And to just, to just read it, like, and experience it and see, because Meredith's transformation was so powerful because when she walked back into the studio, I think it was like six months later or something, 
I can't, yeah, I can't remember. Honestly, it's a blur, but yeah, it was like six months later and, or something, it was toward the end of like, right when I was uh, finishing up teaching Pilates and, and she came back in and I was like, holy moly, what did you do? Cause like she was walking completely different. She was totally able to lie on her back. She was able to do tons of Pilates exercises that I like, I was treating her when I first was working with her. I was treating her like I, I had worked with geriatric patients. So it was, it was a total, it was literally like working with a totally different body because she had shifted her mindset around around her body. And if you want more information around this, we will leave the book in the show notes. I will also leave uh, some links to interviews with Dr. Joe Dispenza, who does a lot of work around the unconscious mind and negative emotions and the body. So I would highly recommend those as well. So Meredith, like now that you've had this massive transformation with your body and at the same time claiming your power, like What's next for you? Well, I mean, I, it's such a hard question because I never know what's, what's coming. Well, mm. okay. I'll say this. So I, I, I'm, I'm continuing with my career um, and seeing where that takes me and getting stronger kind of every year. Um, but I've also made a goal for 2020 to start, investing in real estate, um, and to try to kind of like pad out my retirement. Um, and, and so my goal is to at least to buy my first, my first investment property in 2020 and then, and then to kind of compound it over like the next few years. So then like in 2021, I will buy two properties in 2023, I'll buy three and then, and then keep going and then exponentially kind of like gain traction that way with it. And so like, that has been my like next big, that's my next big goal um, in terms of like what, like what's next for me with um, like, you know, making money, but um, really like happiness is something that, that I've been working on for the past few years or not working on, but something that's kind of been revealing itself to me mm -hmm. like, ever since I've kind of been coming out of this, fog of chronic pain, um, I've noticed that just my serotonin levels are so much higher. And, um, and every, every year it's just getting, they're getting better and better. And 2019 has been so good. Like I'm just lighter, I'm lighter and happier. And really it's like for the first time, I think in my adult life, like, can I say that? Oh my gosh, girl, that makes me so happy to hear that. Like that, lights my heart on fire to hear that 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 is like the big thing for you thank you <laughs> thank you yeah it's it's good it's really good this is a really good time for me let's move in to just shifting gears because i think i i know you deal you do a lot with with a lot of things that are very very meaningful like gender equality and i think a lot of times in many industries, especially I've found in, in Hollywood, sometimes we focus on how being a woman has had a detriment or like we've all had those like comments and whatnot. But how can we focus on being a woman as, as being an amazing asset? How has being a woman helped you in your career? Um, 
So it's such a good question because my industry is notoriously male dominated. Yes. Um, yeah. But really like, okay, women are amazing collaborators. We are amazing collaborators and we have, you know, there's a, the term women's intuition is like a very real thing. And um, in my job specifically, that has been such an asset to me. Um, kind of and and seeing and using it and being like wow I use this you know and it's and it's and I see a lot of people around me not really doing that Mm -hmm. Um, and I so it kind of feels like a superpower but (laughs) the 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 ease and and the willingness that we have as women to collaborate um, especially like when you're in a creative industry like me is like it's like you just gain so much from that. And then also, you know, really using your intuition and acting on it has been um, a huge asset for me. So how would you teach, in essence, men to tap into more their, their women's intuition? Because we all have masculine and feminine energies within us. It's just a law of polarity. But that, that feminine, that women's intuition, how would you advise men, especially in your industry, to tap more into that? I think like you know, trying to see beyond the ego um, is, is, is the advice that I would give, which is, you know, for me, because I, I had, you know, I had it too. We all have it. Yeah. Um, and for me, it really came through like a lot of meditation over like a long period of time and like have, and then going through these experiences and being willing to learn from them, which, you know, it doesn't really look, it doesn't really look like that with a lot of people. And so I don't, I, I wouldn't advise men, I don't think, to like start meditating because I don't know that that would be, you know, the best way to reach them. But whatever you can do to drop the ego or not drop it, but like to look past it a little bit mm-hmm. and to maybe like suck it up, you know, and, and, and collaborate and, and be just being open to the success of people beneath you, you know what I mean? And to really kind of tap into this like whole world of talent that you have in the levels below you is something that is, you know, will help out, will help you and make you look better if you just are willing to do that. If that makes sense. I love that. I love that so much. Cause I think just the concept of somebody being like on an, on a metaphysical level, like no one is beneath each other. We're all equals, but that, concept of like dropping the ego because those people have such value to offer as well in in collaboration so what is one collaboration that that you found to be super successful and why did you think that that was so successful well i did a so i've notoriously one of the you know, one of my weak points, um, it, you know, that I've had to kind of try to overcome in my career is the kind of inability to delegate, mm-hmm. <laughs> which I think is common. And, um, you know, it's like, oh, well, you know, anytime I kind of like allow somebody else to do it, it's like it doesn't get done right. So then I have to do it. And I just end up doing everything. And, blah, blah, blah. and then, of course, that doesn't work because you can't do everything. And so <clears throat> somebody once told me, like a mentor of mine once told me, um, he said, the secret to being, this is before I was a showrunner, he said, the secret to being a good showrunner is, is hiring really good people. And I was like, oh, well, that and that and that kind of triggered something. I was like, yeah, you know, like it, if I can actually delegate 
And if I can like allow myself to do that and just see what happens. And so <clears throat> there, a project that I did, what, when was it? I don't know. Recently, um, I did this like amazing project with Hello Sunshine called Master the Mess. Um, and it's actually getting in the process, I think, of getting picked up for season two, which I'm really excited about. Yay! Yay! Um, I really let go on that show. And I, I delegated and I hired these, I hired great people who did me massive favors by working within the restrictive budget. And, um, and I really, really, really put so much effort into hiring the right people. And then I trusted them and I let them own their work and they did not let me down. And because, because of that, I was able to focus on, you know, my position. They did their jobs and the show was smooth and it was, the show was smooth and it was so good. It was really good. It was a really good show. And I was blessed with like an amazing kind of network to work with and the production company was amazing. And like, so all of the, all of these things together. Also, it didn't, you know, it definitely helped that I, my staff was 85% female and yeah. also, and the males were fantastic as well. Like I just got so lucky. Um, but the, but the, but I really believe that the essence of the, of, of the, the success for that show was because I was, I was able to let go. And so when I saw, when I saw that happening, I was like, Oh my God, I should have been doing this, you know, for the past 15 years, but, um, you know, it's never too late. <laughs> Girl, I feel you. Cause I did like, I work with a lot of like beginning entrepreneurs who are just kind of, they're, they're either starting their business or they've had their business for a little while, but it's not really moving forward. And the number one thing that I always recommend is like delegate something, even if it's like two hours of, of work to a virtual assistant or somebody like find a way to take some of the stuff off your plate. Cause I too was in that position of like doing it all myself and those all those limiting beliefs of like you know oh if if i don't do it it's not going to get done right but i'm like you know that's that's the ego talking like i had to check my ego wholeheartedly and be like you know that's the ego talking somebody can do it 80% as good as i can and 80% is a b and that's 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 really good because that b that 80% allowed me 2 3 hours more time with my son and that's the most important thing Right. That is, that is 100% right. It's also like to that point, you know, it's also when I real when I really started implementing balance into my life, because normally when I'm on a job, I'm on the job and nothing else. And then mm -hmm. when I'm not, you know, and then when I'm, when I wrap the job and I'm off for a month or whatever, th then I'm like, I'm just like, oh, you know, trying to like catch my breath and like, <laughs> you know, exercise a little bit and, and just go through my mail. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> But now I'm like, I don't have to be that way. You know, you know what I mean? And so like, to your point, that help, it just helps with, it helps in so many ways in every area. Oh, that is such a theme going on right now in just the past couple of interviews that I've been having for this show. So thank you so much. So let's dive in to some rapid fire to wrap this up. So you ready? I am. All right. What is your favorite female character in a movie? Um, Rose McGowan's character in, um, oh my God, uh, what's it called? It's the, um, R Robert Rodriguez, Quentin Tarantino, um, grind, Grindhouse. Grindhouse. 
yeah, it's, I can't remember her name right now because it's rapid fire and there's so much pressure, but she has a, <laughs> a machine gun for a leg. And so she's my like most badass character of all time. Oh, I remember that. Yeah. <laughs> totally badass. So if you were queen of a country, what would be your prime focus? Mm, um, my, I, it would be, it would be women's issues. Mm-hmm. What would you consider to be your kingdom or queendom? What would I consider to be? Mm-hmm. How would you define that? Um, oh, okay. So it would be, it would be very, it would be inclusive. Um, it would be um, collaborative. Mm-hmm. Um, it would be definitely not a dictatorship. Um, it would be, it would be cruelty free. <laughs> I would be very encur- would be encouraging people to, um, you know, not eat animals, <laughs> <laughs> but not making them not. <laughs> um, yeah, it would be, but I think inclusion is, 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 would be like my overall main focus. I love that. Uh, if your palace had a curse jar, how much money would you have to put in on an, on a daily basis? How much money would you charge yourself and how much money would you have to put in on a daily basis? For me, myself? Yes. Um... I don't know. I feel like I need to think about this. A hundred dollars. A hundred dollars. Awesome. What woman would you want to trade places with just for one day? Michelle Obama. If you had to have your success at twice the speed, how would you have done it? I would have, I would have, I would have, um, not, I would have cut out all of my successes and only kept my failures. I'm that damn girl. <laughs> what message do you want to share with the world? Be open to other perspectives. Um, start listening more. Just start listening more. Close your mouth um, and, and listen <clears throat> because that is where a change is made. And lastly, how do you crown yourself? I... I remind myself that nobody is going to die if I don't do this, these last few things on my to-do list. I remind, I I remind myself that, you know, it's okay to leave work at seven o'clock, even though everything's not done. Um, And I make sure that I listen to at least one queen song a day. Amen. (laughs) I love that. Don't stop me now is like my morning motivation every morning. Oh my gosh, me too. Not every morning, but that's definitely one of my like workout running jams. That's oh, yeah. <laughs> oh so amazing. Meredith, it has been such a pleasure. Where can we find you? How can we support you and all that you're doing? Um, well, you can find me on my, I, I would say find me on Twitter. I'm at Prunkard. That's drunkard with a P basically. That's how you spell it. At Prunkard. Um, and um, yeah, just so, so look out. I always kind of plug like whatever show I have coming out and all of the things that I'm proud of with all of my endeavors I will post about and follow me on Twitter and, um, you know, see what I see the things, check out the things that I care about and see how you can help. I love it. I love it. And we will have links in the show notes for you to check out all that is the Amer- uh, the amazing Meredith Prunkard. That is P 
that's like drunk card with a P. I love the fact that you said that. That's funny. <laughs> and as always, my fellow queens, if you loved this episode, please take a screenshot of it and tag me at crown yourself now on Instagram so that I can know what your top takeaway is. And as always, I do have a special hypnosis for those of you who take a screenshot of your review. If you love this episode, please leave a review, take a screenshot, email it to info at crownyourself.com and I will send you a free hypnosis. Thank you so much, Meredith, for coming on. It has been such a pleasure to talk to you again. And same. Thank you so much. Your energy is so good. Oh, thank you so much. And as always, my fellow empire builders, own your throne, mind your business, and make it rain. Thank you so much for tuning in today. If what you heard resonated with you, be sure to subscribe and share your breakthroughs and ahas with me by leaving a review on iTunes so I can keep the magic flowing your way. And if you aren't already following us on social media, come experience the extra inspiration and queenly convos on Instagram at crown yourself now, or visit our website at crownyourself.com. I am so excited to connect with you in the next episode. And in the meantime, go out there and create a body, business, and life that rules.